So last week we began a study in the book of Habakkuk. And I want to review a little bit of what we discussed and what we saw there. Some of what we did last week was reconstructing the history. There is difficulty in appreciating the teaching and the intensity and the flavor of Old Testament text when we have little to no concept of what was happening during that time. So in the years leading up to the prophetic ministry of Habakkuk, you had King Hezekiah who repelled through the help of the Lord the siege that was laid against Jerusalem from Shennacherib, king of Assyria. And the Lord uh, told him, get your affairs in order, you're going to get sick and die, or you'll die from this sickness, and so get your affairs in order, you're about to be uh, taken off stage left, essentially. Um, But Hezekiah prayed, and he was granted 15 more years, and during that time, he raised up his son Manasseh to reign. And Manasseh was the worst king in all of the history of Judah or Israel. And he plunged Judah into a type of idolatry that had not been seen since the founding of the nation, that hadn't even been seen since the time of the judges. Human sacrifice and idolatry were the way of the world during that time. And God promised that judgment would come, that he was essentially done with showing patience. Manasseh took him over the edge, as it were. But after Manasseh died and another king that only ruled 10 years, good king Josiah came. And Josiah was contrite. And when he heard the law read, he was broken, cut to the heart, and uh, began issuing all these decrees of moral reform such that God promised that the destruction of Jerusalem would not happen in his lifetime, but would delay until afterwards. After Josiah died, Judah began rapidly declining back into idolatry. And so when we come to Habakkuk, that is the context. It's just back and forth. So you have a good king, Hezekiah, Manasseh, who was awful, and then the good king, Josiah, and then back to moral decline. That was the context. And Habakkuk cries out, Why, O Lord? Or the most uh, fitting summary of Habakkuk's complaint is, How long, O Lord? How long are you going to keep watching all this unfold and not take action? So in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, the prophet issues his complaint. He asks four questions and makes six statements. We looked at those in detail last week, and if you haven't heard that message, this message would make a lot more sense if you uh, heard that, so maybe afterwards you can listen if you were unable to be here. And then the Lord answers in verses 5 through 11. So the prophet protests. He says, How long, O Lord, will you let this keep going on? And the Lord's answer is essentially this, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. He's raising up Babylon. So here's what Habakkuk says. Look at this wickedness, Lord. How are you going to let this continue? Why are you letting this continue? Why are you letting me see it? It's a horrible situation. There's some righteous left. That's indicated in the prophet's complaint. He says the wicked surround the righteous. So there are some in Judah who are still trusting in the Lord, but not many. So he says... Look at all this wickedness, Lord. Do something about it. And and God's answer is essentially, yes, but have you seen my divine instrument for judgment? And that's not the answer that he wanted or expected, and that's not the answer that we want or expect. And so today we come to the further complaint. So we, we finished last week at verse 11 where God finishes his answer to the first complaint. And the prophet brings another protest. The Lord's first answer only makes matters worse. We discussed some of that last week. It only intensifies the problem. And just as an encouragement to you as you seek to live this difficult life of trusting in the Lord, very often... Uh, the Lord's answers aren't what you expect. And one of the ways that we can be just confident 
very, very confident in the validity of Scripture is that it rings true. When you read it, you're like, well, that's exactly what I would say. That's exactly how I would respond. Um, One of the examples is uh, when God comes to the garden after Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit and they start blaming each other and blaming God and that destruction of the first family begins to unfold. It's just confirmation. Yep, yep, this is the real account because that's exactly how things go in our lives. We see it played out on display. We can just have confidence that this is in fact true. So Habakkuk's complaint back to the Lord is exactly how we would respond. It's not made up. It's not legendary. These are the things we feel. Let me just say as an aside, uh, I'm convinced that the enemy doesn't want you to hear this message. There are many things that have happened this week to ensure that the delivery and the content of this would be subpar. And that's true every week. The Lord wants us to hear His Word. The enemy doesn't want us to hear the Word of the Lord, but especially in a message like this that prophetically declares the destruction of the wicked, the enemy doesn't want us to have the confidence in the Lord that this text can give you. So listen closely. So here's how Habakkuk replies. It's in three parts. His first, the first part of his reply or complaint or protest can be summarized with this statement. How is this justice? How is this just of you? So look at verses 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, You have ordained them as a judgment, and You, O Rock, have established them for reproof. The first verse, and this this is kind of the, the summary of verse 12, is an affirmation and some some confusion. He's essentially saying this, am I mistaken in my theology? Are you not who you say you are, O Lord? Are are you not the God of the covenant? And and remember, the backdrop is, is he's looking at what the Lord answered in the first. And this is what is generating this response. And God's answer to the prophet's first complaint is, I'm bringing the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to discipline my people. And so the prophet says, this, this seems to be incongruent with who you say you are. You're a God of justice. You're a God of righteousness. You're a God, we're going to see in a little bit, who cannot look at wrong. How can this be congruent with who you say you are? And is this not the struggle that many of us find ourselves in when we encounter difficulty? We see something in the world, we see something in our own lives, and we say, how is this congruent with who you say you are? Maybe you've read something difficult in Scripture. How is this congruent with who you say you are, Lord? You are omniscient, are you not? You are all-loving, are you not? You are always good, are you not? How can this be your answer, Lord? And when he says, we shall not die... Um, he's, he's indicating, are we not your people? You've made promises that you would keep us alive. And now you're bringing Babylon to sweep us away? If Sodom and Gomorrah could have been spared for just ten righteous people in the city, you remember the story, Abraham essentially bargains or negotiates God down to, if there's just ten righteous in the city, will you spare the city for the sake of ten? I will not destroy it. If you're that merciful to Sodom and Gomorrah, can't you be as merciful to us, your people? We shall not die. You've promised Abraham. You've promised David. We would continue forever. Can't you get us out of here like Lot? And he also acknowledges that this is what God has done. He he understands the nature of God's answer. Look at it again. Second half of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. He's essentially saying, okay, so 
This is what you're up to, Lord. I understand it. You've ordained them as judgment. He's, and he's not necessarily resigning to this as the reality. He's not happy about it. He doesn't like it. But it shows that he clearly sees what God has said. And so uh, understand that he is, he's not wavering in his faith about who God is. He just doesn't like God's answer. He acknowledges that God is the one who ordains. God is the one who establishes. God is the rock, he calls him. And he's ordained them for judgment. He's ordained, he's established them for rebuke. God is the one doing this. He acknowledges God's sovereignty in all of this. And he is troubled, deeply troubled by what he sees. And so this is a protest and it's also a complaint. He essentially says, Lord, you're pure. You can't look at evil. How can you look at evil and do nothing? How can you raise up the wicked to punish someone more righteous than him? That's that's the key problem with what Habakkuk sees. Look at it in verse 13. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? That swallows up is just a very vivid and troubling Mental picture, is it not? And the one that God has ordained and established for judgment and reproof is swallowing up those more righteous than he. And I said last week that this is the central issue or problem uh, that the prophet has with the Lord's answer. It's the reason why it's unacceptable to him. And I need us, we need all of us together to understand this. It's a bitter but peace-giving truth. The prophet needed to hear it, and we need to hear it as well. To help us make sense of a world gone mad. God uses those less righteous than his people to discipline his people. From the prophet's perspective and from ours, the reason this does not make sense and why it seems to make matters worse is that at the end of the day, if this is how God works, doesn't that mean that wickedness increases and it continues to increase? Here's how Robertson put it. Admittedly, Israel needed some form of corrective chastening. Their own exercise of brutality deserved a proper reprimand from the Lord, but Habakkuk could not understand the breadth of the oppression that the Lord now revealed to him. His heart and mind were wounded from such awesome prospects. When God revealed to the prophet his plan to bring punishment and discipline on his people, his heart couldn't take it in. So we come to the second part of the prophet's reply or his complaint And you could summarize it by saying this, behold his wickedness. So the first part is, how is this just, Lord? And then his second part is, look at how wicked he is. And he begins by talking about this pitiful state of mankind. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So the prophet sees all humankind and the human race as as this oppressed group of creeping things or swarming things in the sea that have no ruler. They're, They're weak and under pressure. And you might ask, well, how can he say there is no ruler? Because there was clearly a king that ruled and every place had a king. But the idea is that there's no just and righteous ruler to protect us from such brutality. When Babylon comes, who will stand between us and them? And it underscores that the Davidic line was broken. and There was no true servant of the Lord to stand and protect the people of God. There were rulers, but there was no righteous king, no once and future king as it were. It's almost a subtle request. Couldn't you send us a good ruler like the promised son of David to rule over us and protect us? In verse 15, the prophet underscores the might or the power of God's divine instrument for judgment. He says, he brings all of them up with a hook. So he's talking about him, and I need you to note this, this is a shift from speaking about the Chaldeans as a, as a nation altogether, and now he's speaking in a personal, 
direct way towards a he. So now instead of the nation of the Chaldeans, it's him, singular pronoun. That'll become important later. So he says, he brings them all with a hook. He drags them out with his net. And the crown prince of Babylon at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, in the battle of Carchemish, when he defeated the last remnants of the power of Assyria, he actually did cross a river, the river Euphrates, to come and lay siege to that city. And the idea here in verse 15 is that he, he's, he's rejoicing Look, look, look at the second half of verse 15. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. The, the, the evil and the wickedness of God's divine instrument for judgment is seen in that he's rejoicing in his oppression of the helpless. It makes him happy. It's a startling image of a sadistic or psychopathic tyrant, which is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was. And there's real historical evidence of the Babylonians leading prisoners of war by a hook in the lip. He leads them all up by the hook. Verse 16, we see that the idolatry, we see the wickedness of his idolatry. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. It's almost as if the prophet takes the role of a prosecuting attorney. And he makes his case very compellingly. So understand the flow. How is this just, Lord? You're using this one to punish your people. Look at his wickedness. And this is the trifecta, if you will, of things that are offensive to the Lord. He has godless idolatry. He's praising his own ability to create oppression. He's essentially worshiping his own power and his own evil. And he has self-centered worship. It's all about him. And and he gains wealth by means of oppression. These are all things that the Lord hates. So the prophet is essentially pointing the finger and saying, how in the world is it just for you to use Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans to come and reprimand us? And then the third part of the prophet's reply, there's there's kind of an unfortunate chapter division here because the prophet's still speaking in verse 17 into verse 1 of chapter 2. The chapter division should really begin at verse 2 of chapter 2. But these two verses, I think, should be taken together, 17 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 2. And this third part is essentially, you could summarize it by saying, how long, O Lord, Again, this was the central protest of the first complaint in verses 1 through 4. And now we see it again, just repackaged. Verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? When does it end, Lord? He understands that he's appointed him for judgment and established him for rebuke. But the question is, how long is this going to go on? How long are you going to let the line run, as it were, until you bring your justice? He said to keep on doing this forever. He has a degree of acceptance that this is how the Lord works. Yet in the face of such wickedness, when does it end? When we read in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament where it says nations, it's, it's generally the same word that stands for peoples. So it's not like he's just going in and destroying other countries in a political sense. He's destroying whole people groups. He's essentially committing genocide. Will the wicked continue to increase and continue to oppress forever? Will the Lord ever bring justice? Will he vindicate the righteous? So that's the first half of the question, how long? And the second half of the question, how long, becomes much more personal. So now he's not thinking about Babylon so much as he's thinking about his complaint and the Lord's relationship to him and how the Lord will answer. Look at what he says. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. 
He's essentially saying, how long shall I wait for an answer? And I want you to see this. I want you to understand this. The prophet maintains his faith and trust in the Lord, and that is demonstrated by his willingness to bring the complaint to the Lord in the first place. It is not wrong to bring a protest or complaint to the Lord. If you think it is, you're just not familiar with the Psalms. So he maintains his trust in the Lord and he's taking his stand on the watchtower and his station at his watch place waiting for the Lord to answer. He trusts in him, but it's very audacious. So his audacity and his faith essentially overlap. They're the same disposition towards the Lord. He wants an answer. He's he's in many ways insisting on an answer. And he's going to wait for it. So there's three things that demonstrate that the prophet is eager for an answer and that he trusts the Lord. He says that he takes a stand at his watch post. He stations himself on the tower and he looks out to see the answer. And this echoes back to the beginning, the oracle or the burden that that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So he's waiting for God to reveal the answer to him. Is that how you prepare for the answer of the Lord. Some people say that you should act as if God has already answered. And that's kind of silly because in situations like this, with unanswerable questions like the problem of evil and the the oppression of the wicked against the righteous, you can't act as if God has already given you the answer because you don't have it. It's just a big blank of confusion. But he takes his stand. And he waits and he looks to see what the Lord will say. We should believe in his character that he will be faithful to answer the cry of his children. We should wait for him. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. I want you to notice there's a subtle distinction between being bitter towards the Lord and bringing your complaint to the Lord. Being bitter against the Lord turns you away from Him. And it makes it so that you continue to double down on your frustration with Him. And you double down on kind of turning away from Him. So you're you're no longer waiting for an answer from from Him. You're just going to go ahead and live your life because who knows if He'll answer it or not. But waiting on the Lord, waiting for his answer, being confident in his character that he will indeed answer, whether in this lifetime or the next, who knows? But we can trust in his character. Notice that he's not trusting in the wisdom of man. This is a difficult question. How, Lord, are you letting this go on? Have you not seen the wickedness of your divine instrument for judgment? He's not turning to uh, maybe a library or his own musings to answer this question. He understands that it is only on the basis of revelation from God that he will be able to answer it. This is how Robertson puts it. Both the humility and the hope of the prophet provide appropriate direction for the church through the ages. God's ways are higher than man's ways. Only by revelation can the genuine perplexities of God's dealings with human with human beings be comprehended. Do you have that confidence? That only on the basis of divine revelation will the complexities of God's dealings with human beings be answered? Or do you trust what the television tells you? Do you trust the wisdom of this world and what bad advice from friends you love tells you? Only divine revelation can untangle these things. Like when you really get down to it, when you really start asking the hard questions and needing the answers that are not cheap platitudes, it's only divine revelation. And he even prepares for more back and forth. The last phrase of of verse 1 of chapter 2, and what I will answer concerning my complaint, it's as if he's, he's preparing emotionally for a stern rebuke from the Lord. He's preparing that God, God's going to say something really stern and I've got to be ready to give my answer back. You can kind of see the, the dynamic like this play out in Job as well. And the Lord does answer. 
It's in three parts as well. You could divide it up different ways. This isn't this grid that you see on your bulletin is not scripture. It's just a way to help us understand it. Part one of the Lord's answer, I think we could summarize in this way. Mercy, severity, power, and hope. And that's just kind of saying all of God's attributes all in one. It's such an astounding response. And I hope I can demonstrate the, the reasons why it's, it's quite amazing. We don't know how long it took for the prophet to receive his answer. There's, it, just, it just transitions straight from the prophet taking his stand in the watchtower and the Lord answering. So it could have been instantaneous. It could have been weeks. It could have been months. It could have been years. But the point is that the Lord will answer. And it's often not on our timeline, as we said. But the hope we have in God and the hope we have in the reality of His promises gives us a guarantee that the Lord will not keep silent forever. And in many ways, He's already spoken and given us the answer to so many of these things. We have just yet to mine the depths of His Word. He will answer His people, but not because He's under obligation. So this is the first of the four words, mercy. God doesn't have to answer you. And he doesn't have to answer us. The Lord answers. This shows his mercy. He's under no obligation to answer Habakkuk. Who is Habakkuk to put God on the stand and question him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? Yet the Lord answers. We should just walk in an awareness that God owes us nothing except judgment. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you don't believe that about yourself, you haven't come to understand the beginnings of the gospel. If you believe that you're one of the good guys, you don't get the gospel. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's terrifying. As we read this morning, there is none who does good, not even one. That's very difficult to swallow. To really believe that, to be convicted of that. It's not us versus them. It's God's holiness versus all of us. God doesn't have to answer. It's as a, a song I, I really love says, Oh Lord, you know the hearts of men and still you let them live. Just be astounded at the mercy of God that you have life and breath this morning. So the Lord draws near in his mercy. He is willing to be entreated by his people and to be questioned by them. But we also see his severity or, or perhaps the surety of his word, the firmness of his word. Look at what he says. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, for it will Surely come, it will not delay. His word is sure. He tells the prophet to write it down, and, and a literal rendering of this could be write it down on the tablets. The indication is whatever the Lord's about to say, whatever this revelation is, it's, it's on par in some sense with the original revelation from God on the two tablets of stone with Moses. So it's a big deal, whatever the prophet's about to say. Write it down on the tablets. And it is waiting for its appointed time. If it doesn't happen immediately, know that it's not because God is changing his mind. It's just waiting for its proper fulfillment. God's still working to prepare his divine instrument for judgment. And then at the same time, it, the decree of whatever this word is, is hastening to the end. Look at it again. It will surely come... 
and not delay. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It's as if God is working within the confines of human history and he's, he's amping up all the dials and throwing the levers as far as he can up to 11 to make sure that the coming of Babylon will happen swiftly. It's any faster and the Lord would break the fourth wall, if you will. So he's working within his providential ordering of all human history to make sure that it happens. And the only reason it's delaying is because he's developing it in its proper course and unfolding. Just as fast as it can come. If you're familiar with the prophets, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know that one of the things you begin to feel is a level of disgust at idolatry, a level of disgust at sin, because we're given a a window into how God feels about sin. And you begin to see things from the Lord's perspective. So the swiftness of the coming judgment should be seen up against that backdrop. That the Lord is disgusted with sin and idolatry. And the thing is hastening to the end because God's fed up with it. He even says in Isaiah to his people, your sacrifices and your festivals make me tired. I'm sick of seeing your fake religion. And I want to make a note about this this end that's mentioned. It hastens to the end. What end is he talking about? And there's no specific reference. And what I found is, at least from one perspective, many Christian and Jewish interpreters seem to take this as a reference, not just to God's purposes with Babylon, but to his purposes for the end of the world. The end of all time. So there's kind of multiple fulfillments kind of stacked on top of each other as we look at the prophet. That in one sense, there's, there's a fulfillment that will happen in a few years when Babylon comes from Mesopotamia and comes down into Canaan, into Palestine, and destroys Jerusalem finally. But then there's a final fulfillment at the end of all things. That this word, whatever this word is that's to be inscribed on the tablets, will be true until the end. Whatever it is that God is about to say, all of, all of this is just leading up to what God is telling him to write. Write down the vision, make it plain so he will run who reads it, talking about the proclaimer, like whoever hears this word as he runs throughout all the nation to proclaim it. Uh, so for still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. They, it will surely come, it will not delay. That's all intro. So we get to the core of what this message is that needs to be inscribed in verses 4 and 5. And some interpreters said that it's as if Habakkuk compiles all the hundreds of commands of the Torah down into one with this statement that stands for all time until the end, the very end. We also see God's power. It will surely come. It will not delay. We should stand in awe of the God who is not in heaven like an overworked air traffic controller or a cosmic dispatch person. I had to call 911 twice this past week. Um, I'm one of those guys that reports things, you know. But man, those people need coffee. They're tired all the time. I can only imagine the stress of being in that type of job. But that's not how God is. The Lord is always on time. He's never truly weary with His ordering of the universe. The Lord always knows, and the Lord is always accomplishing His purposes. He's not trying to put out fires, as it were. The reason why Babylon will ultimately come and sweep away the nation of Judah and overrun the holy city of Jerusalem is because God is ensuring that they will surely do it. That they will be both willing and able to accomplish it. And if that seems too heavy or hard to hear, consider this. Every moment that the Lord gives the wicked to continue being wicked 
ensures that they just increase in their wickedness. He could end it all right now. But one of the reasons he doesn't end it all right now is because one of God's purposes is to use the wickedness of the wicked to begin judgment at the household of God. And that is why Habakkuk had such a complaint. And that is why this word is so hard for us to hear. We don't understand God's purposes. We point the finger like the prophet did. We could all have been out of shape because Babylon is so wicked. And yet, the reason he doesn't end Babylon now is because Judah must still be punished. Now, there is hope that God offers, and it seems far off. And the prophet maintains his hope, even though the fulfillment of God's hope seems way, way in the future, just like Abraham. How is it possible that God will keep his promises to make me into a great nation? I don't even have a child. But he maintains his faith, and that's how we must endure And what is this decree? What is it that needs to be written on the tablets and that stands until the end of time? What is this word or vision from the Lord? Now, I think one of the reasons that we avoid the Old Testament and the minor prophets altogether is that it's simply heavy stuff. We want to be cheerful. We want to be happy. We want to leave here with a pep in our step and... Be eager to serve the Lord because Jesus is so awesome for the rest of the week, right? You'll avoid most of your Old Testament if that's what you want. And I would frankly say a lot of the New Testament. You need to know the God who is there. You need to know how he works and what he's up to in the world. Or this world won't make sense. If you're honest with it, you can close your ears and eyes and pretend like everything is Pollyanna and good and beautiful. But it's not. And then as we come to face to face with the final enemy of death, we realize that things are not as they should be. And we need answers. We need hard, well thought out answers that aren't platitudes. There is great benefit in seeing that the Bible is more honest about the horror of this world than any of the answers that the world gives. It's a very honest book. That's why I'm so proud of the Bible. It can hold its own in any debate, philosophical or otherwise. Ecclesiastes, Job, the Minor Prophets, Genesis, like it can stand in the ring and win. But your bumper stickers won't. The little nice statements on the coffee mugs won't. So what is this statement? What, what, what is this word, this, this amazing declaration from the Lord? It has a few parts. <clears throat> Number one, the Lord's judgment extends even to the heart of man. Look at what he says. Verse four, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright Within him. The Lord is not blinding his eyes to the perverseness of man's lawlessness. He's not passing over the pride of those that he uses to discipline his people. He is fully aware. This might even be a foreshadowing of his judgment of Nebuchadnezzar. This this will be several decades later when Nebuchadnezzar. wells up in pride and declares himself as an all-powerful ruler, God humbles him and takes away his sanity and he lives among the creatures out in the field eating grass. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But that's only half of the encouragement. So it's encouragement, it's hope that's given to us in the midst of this world gone mad. And the first half is, don't worry, the Lord does see the wickedness of the wicked. He knows. He's aware. And his penetrating insight of his judgment is more clear and more uh, precise and more exacting than anything we feel towards the wicked. But the sec- that's only half of an encouragement. That's, that's not all that we need. The second half is this. But the righteous shall live by his faith. 
This is an amazing statement for a couple of reasons. One is, it's out of place. That might sound odd for a preacher to say that something in the Bible is out of place, but it really is. If you look at the beginning of verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up within him, it is not upright within him. You could go straight to the beginning of verse 5 and just keep reading and you wouldn't feel like you missed anything. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. So he's, he's talking about God's exacting, judging eye against the wicked, and then he just interrupts the flow of thought and says, but the righteous will live by faith. And it underscores its significance. And also, it's not what we would want the Lord to say. This is one of the other reasons this is an amazing statement. It's not what we want the Lord to say here. If, if we were writing this, if we were to say, Behold, his soul is not puffed up, it, his soul is puffed up within him, it is not upright with him, maybe we would want the Lord to say something like this, And so I will punish him, or so I will judge him, or so I will remove him, or so he will not live. But he says essentially the opposite. He stops talking about the wicked and says something about the righteous. But the righteous will live by his faith. That underscores the significance again. And in fact, this passage is quoted twice by Paul. And it's also quoted by the author of Hebrews. And all three of those citations are at central places in the arguments of those three books. Galatians, Romans, and Hebrews. You, you, can't, you can't find a, a more significant three books in the New Testament. And at central points in those three books, in their argument, this passage is cited. It's one of the most important verses in your whole Old Testament. This is how Paul quotes it in Romans. For in it, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by his faith. And from Galatians, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And then the author of Hebrews The coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. So what does this mean for Habakkuk? How how is he saying this? How is the Lord saying this statement in connection with everything that's already been revealed? And if you remember from last week, I told you to circle this word back in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. I've already alluded to it. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. So the question is, and this is the question of the prophet. Okay, Lord, I understand that this is your purpose for judgment, but how is it that the righteous will endure? How is it that those who trust in you will receive your promises, even in view of your punishment, even in view of your discipline? How is it that we will be rewarded by our trust? And this is the Lord's answer. The righteous will live by faith. Will it be getting them out like Lot and his family? Will it be fleeing in some sense? Will it be blood on the doorpost part two? Will it be getting them on a boat like Noah? No. The righteous will live by his faith. So this means a few things. Four things I think it means. Number one, the righteous now, the ones who are considered righteous now, will continue to be righteous through faith. And if the Apostle Paul were standing right here, he would say, and not by works. The righteous, who are righteous now, will continue to be righteous, not on the basis of works or appeasement, do's and don'ts or whatever else, but it will be based on faith, trust in the Lord Jesus. Therefore, it is only those who have faith or trust in the Lord who are righteous in the first place. This is how Paul understands it when he says, from faith, for faith. That those who are righteous right now are only so because they trust in the Lord. And they're going to stay righteous because they continue trusting in the Lord. 
Number two, even if you consider yourself to be one of the righteous and you stop trusting in the Lord, if you abandon steadfast trust in the Lord, then you will not live because it is only by faith that the righteous will live. Number three, those who trust in the Lord, even though they will get swept away in the coming judgment, will live by faith. Think of Daniel. Righteous Daniel. The, the, the Bible puts Daniel on a pedestal intentionally, that, that Daniel is one of the most righteous persons who ever lived. And he gets swept away and has to become a eunuch and serve in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. How will Daniel live? By his faith. Yet, and and I need you to understand the intensity of the statement and how it begs all sorts of questions and how you need to approach the text and ask it questions. How is it that the righteous will live by faith even though many of the righteous died in the coming judgment? I mean, that's, that's patently obvious. Many of the righteous died when Nebuchadnezzar came and laid siege to Jerusalem. So I think number four, this is teased out in chapter three when we get there, but I think it inherently requires a resurrection. There are people who say that the resurrection as a doctrine and as a teaching really wasn't developed until later in the first century when the apostles had time to think and discuss and everything and the implications about Jesus' resurrection. But it's so clear at many places in the Old Testament, this text isn't true unless there's a resurrection because the righteous will live. But many of them died. So the only way God can be true is if there is a second life. just made clear, I think, by simple reflection on what we mean by trust and faith. What are we trusting and believing in God that will happen? Is it just maintaining that we believe that God is God? Well, I'm going to keep believing that God is real. I get you nowhere. Maintaining your trust in God is believing that it is better. It is objectively better to trust in God than any alternative life. And it has to really be better. It has to really result in real, tangible blessing sometime. Or it's not real trust. There's no benefit. If we're just stoics and we're just going through life experiencing suffering, well, well, I guess the Lord is better and it just ends poorly. That's not believing in God for the right reasons. It's because it's better. He is better. His blessings are better. His person is better. And when he comes to stand on the earth, those who trust in him will be vindicated. Consider the situation of Job. I think this is, this is what it meant for Job to maintain his righteousness and why God can say at the very end that his friends didn't talk rightly about him like he did. This is what he says in chapter 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, the end, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Not just my children one day. Not just those who come after me and benefit from my heritage of faith, but I myself will see the Lord. My heart faints within me. Even in his frailty, even in his limited faith that he had, he maintained his trust in the Lord that he would indeed see God. After his flesh had been destroyed, what what else can that mean except the resurrection? He didn't have it all worked out perfectly. And nor do we. But that's what faith and trust means. Not just believing that God's there and that he's, he's God, but that it's better to trust him. So that's the first portion of God's answer. His mercy, his severity or surety, 
his power, and his giving hope. The second part of the Lord's answer we can see in verse 5. This, this verse is kind of a transition, but it also explains some of what is meant in the first clause of verse 4. Verse 4, it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And then the interlude of the second half of verse 14. And then I think the Lord explains what he means or further expounds on what he means by that first clause. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. There's a few uh, points to make about this. One is uh, the, the Masoretic text says wine is a traitor, but in the Dead Sea Scrolls it says that uh, wealth is a traitor. If you're looking at the ESV, you can see that in the footnote there. It actually points it out. And there's some question which to go with. Is it wine or wealth? And I think it's resolved very easily if we go back to verse 16 of chapter 1. Look at what he says. This is the prophet's complaint. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So one of the worst things that the prophet sees in God's answer, one of the most frustrating things that I think we see when we look out on the world and try to make sense of it, is not that there are wicked people. Understand this. That's not the problem. That is not the problem of evil. That there are just wicked people. The problem is that the wicked seem to prosper because of their wickedness. That's the problem. If it went horribly for everyone who ever did anything wicked, then we wouldn't have a problem of evil. The problem is, he, this paragon of evil, represented in the person of Nebuchadnezzar, by his dragnet, so by his oppression and cruelty, he grows rich. He has luxury and fat food because of his wickedness. So when we get to chapter 2, and he says, moreover, wine is a traitor, I think whether he's talking about wealth generally or the particular delicacy of wine, he's saying it's going to betray him either way. This luxury that the wicked one gains through his wickedness will ultimately betray him. And if you fast forward to Belteshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Remember what he was doing when the handwriting came on the wall that the Persians would destroy Babylon? He was drinking wine, living in luxury. You can hear echoes of Solomon's experiment here that you can try to make your life better and get all the good out of life that you want, but if you don't have the Lord, it's all vanity. So the Lord is, I think, replying to the central complaint. Whatever the wicked gains by means of his wickedness will ultimately betray him. The Lord knows more than we do about the wickedness of the wicked. This is the second encouragement from this text. Look at what he says. His greed is as wide as Sheol, the place of the dead. Like death itself, he never has enough. This wine or this, this luxury, this wealth has driven him mad to the point that his greed is unfathomable. And the Lord sees it. Just as an aside, that is the effect of wealth and luxury on all of us. You need to look up from your life and take stock and ask yourself the hard question of whether or not your heart has been led astray by the pleasures of Vanity Fair. Are we seeking what the Gentiles seek? Are we wanting the same things that the wicked person here wants? We're just not willing to use a dragnet and lead up captives by the hook to get it, but we'll try to get it in other respectable ways. But very often we want the same thing. How do you define the good life? So comparing this, verse 5, to the description that Habakkuk gives at the beginning, it's as if the Lord gives him more material. You think you understand the wickedness of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon? Here's the truth. His greed is as wide as hell itself. 
He's never satisfied. It's as we said last week, it's worse than you think. And the Lord sees and the Lord knows. The last thing I think we should understand is that the lawless one comes by the power and working of Satan. Remember the shift that I noted that we're talking about Chaldea and the nation of Babylon, and then it just inexplicably makes the shift to he, this this paragon of evil, as I said. He gathers all people of the earth to be his own. That, That carries like God of this world illusions. Here's how Robertson says it. One more time, I'll quote him. Such wholesale slaughter must have as its ultimate source only Satan himself. If Cain killed his brother because he was of the evil one, 1 John 3.12, then certainly the merciless slaughter of the Babylonians must be inspired by the archenemy of the Lord himself. And that is actually encouragement. Because it's not just these forces of evil at work in humankind. God himself is allowing the enemy to work this for his own purposes. He's on a leash and cannot do one thing except that the Lord grants it. And I'll give this to you just as a preview. This is the third part of God's response to the prophet. Part three, woe to the wicked. So before we get to the answer that we want, that we crave, Lord, will you ever punish the wicked? How long will you let this go on? Before we get to that, the Lord wants us to trust him and be sure to know that he will accomplish his purposes and to persevere in faith until the end. That's what he wants us to do. But he does tell us in verses 6 through 20, woe to the wicked. And the themes are, Everything that the wicked has done to oppress the weak and the downtrodden will be turned back in double portion against the wicked. But we'll look at that next week. So just in conclusion, how shall we then live? Well, the first and most obvious answer is by faith. Have faith in the Lord. Trust Him. It should be the most obvious takeaway from this question. In view of a world gone mad and unanswerable questions about the insanity that we see, trust in the Lord. Trust in His good purposes. Real trust in the Lord is not a blind leap. Have you ever asked yourself this question? What does it really mean to trust in the Lord, to to have faith in God? Is it because you don't have any other options? While true, that's not why you should trust the Lord. Is it because it's the best of all the systems out there? While true, that's not why you should trust the Lord. Is it because it's the most comforting system or belief structure, even if it's not true? That's madness, and that's not how you should trust the Lord. But that's how some people think. Well, even if it's not true, this is the best option. Do you trust the Lord because you've had personal experiences with God? You feel a certain way? That's silly, because you can deceive yourself. We trust Him, or ought to trust Him, because He has proven Himself trustworthy. The prophet could look back at all of God's deliverances of the people of Israel and know I can trust him because he's trustworthy. He will make good on his word. And one of the ways that he could see very clearly that God was trustworthy is because he was bringing Babylon to discipline his people. He was making good on the promises of curse that he had given in Deuteronomy. He's faithful. We can trust him. Church history and the Bible is filled not with heroes of the faith who say, look at me, I trusted in the Lord, but rather, look at the Lord, trust Him, He's trustworthy. That's how we shall live. That's how we will stand in the judgment. That's how we will persevere between now and the end. Number two, prepare for the taunts of the wicked. 
David cries out concerning his oppressors. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And those surrounding the cross, several hundred years later, said to Jesus, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he, de- if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Why does it seem to go so poorly for the people of God? Just be ready for the taunts of the wicked. As we trust in God and His good purposes to discipline us, even through the wickedness of the world, we can take it to the bank that they will mock us as we trust God. And if we are rightly prepared, knowing that this will be their response, then we can respond to them by saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because if we know and believe that it is only those who are righteous by faith who will live, then those who do not trust in the Lord, even if they're not as wicked as Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar himself, they will suffer the same fate that he did. Because it is only the righteous who will live. Number three, rest in the knowledge that God knows. One of the reasons I think we can get so upset and unsettled and uneasy when we consider the state of the world and the wickedness in our nation and our city is that we really don't have firm confidence in the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. We don't really believe it's going to happen. Say it another way. If we really had a firm conviction about Jesus Christ coming one day to judge the living and the dead and all of his promises of blessing and judgment coming to fruition, we would have peace in our hearts and the gospel on our lips. That'd be it. Number four. Rest in the knowledge that God will judge. We'll mainly discuss that next week as we look at the woes to the wicked. But it's simply a corollary, as mentioned earlier. If it is only the righteous who will live by faith, then those who are proud and who insist on their own righteousness and insist on their own way, they won't live. They will face God's judgment. Understand that the binary is not good people and bad people. When you look out at the world, that's not what's happening. It is those who have steadfast trust in the Lord and those who don't. That's it. Those who humbly run to Him in faith because He's the only one who can save us. And those who are proud and think that they have it all together and are righteous enough on their own. There's no neutral ground with the Lord. You either trust Him humbly or you're not going to live. The wicked will not prosper forever. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand this. And it can be so so steadying to your soul. The wicked will not prosper forever. And count his delay as mercy for you and for them. We, We simply do not understand the magnitude of that day. Those who stubbornly insist on their own righteousness will not live. They will be swept away. So lastly, flee to Christ for refuge. The day is coming. Whether for all of us all together at the end, the end, or for yourself, when you face the final enemy of death, the only way you will live is through trust in the Lord. That is the gospel That is the truth of his offer to you, that if you trust in Jesus, if you maintain steadfast hope in the Lord, you will live. And that offer is made to you every single time you hear it. It is a legitimate offer for you to find refuge and safety in the Lord. And understand it is by faith alone. I need to make this clear Because I'm concerned about many in the church, especially in our nation, who call themselves believers. The righteous will live by faith. 
Not because you do X, Y, and Z. Not because you have things sorted out the right way with your political views. Not because you give to the right causes. Not because you have the right theology regarding soteriology or trinity or whatever. You can be very infantile in your understanding of those more difficult questions, but the binary is, do you trust in Him or not? And if you trust in Him, you'll live. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you abandoned hope in yourself and sought refuge in the rock? May today be the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for giving us answers to hard questions. You, you don't owe it to us. But we know that you're merciful, you're good, you love us, you care for us. Help us understand what you're doing in the world and that it's for our ultimate good, even though you use the wickedness of the world to discipline us and to train us and prepare us for the final day. Help us trust you and persevere in our faith. May it be so from now until the day of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.